0: of Luke. Luke chapter 15. We're looking at verses 8 through 10 this morning. Luke chapter 15 verses 8 through 10. And as you're turning in your Bibles there this morning, I want you to consider that according to Wycliffe Bible translators, there are an estimated 7,000 different languages in the entire world, and yet only about 636 of those languages have a complete Old and New Testament in their own language. Some 1,442 languages have a New Testament. Another 1,100 or so have bits and pieces translated into their own language. And still, there are others that are in the process of being translated. But there are only 636 of the 7,000 different languages that have a complete Old and New Testament. But what that boils down to this morning is that there is an estimated 1.5 billion people who awoke this morning who have no Bible available to them. Think about that for a moment. That's 1.5 billion people who are unable to do what you just did and take your Bible And open God's word and place it on your lap. 1.5 billion people are without any words of hope, any words of life, no words to restore the soul, no words to enlighten the eyes, no words to rejoice the heart as Psalm 19 describes the word of God. Nor are they able to even read the message of God's salvation through faith in Christ Jesus in their own language this very day. And so as we approach this time this morning, we need to do so with reverence and thanksgiving. We need to be praising God for the treasure that we have in the written word in our own language, that we can open it up and we can study it to be instructed and reproofed and corrected and trained in righteousness. And we need to pray for more William Tyndales in the world, men who will translate the Bible for every tongue, tribe, and nation, all for the glory of God. And so with that, I want us to read our text together this morning to see what God would have us to learn this morning through his word. If you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word, I want to invite you to do so. Luke chapter 15 Beginning in verse 8, God's inspired and inerrant word says this. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to treasure your word that we have. Help us to delight in it, for in it we get to know you. We are able to worship you truly in spirit and truth through it. So, Father, we just pray that this morning that our ears would be open to hear your message that you have for us today, that our hearts would be soft and tender to let it be implanted deep. So, Father, help us to take this time to learn your truths and walk in obedience from here. We just pray all these things In the precious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. In a word, Luke chapter 15 is absolutely full of the grace of God. It is 32 verses manifesting to us the grace of Almighty God. And if there is ever a subject that we Christians need to be reminded of, frequently and regularly, if there is ever a topic that we need to have pressed upon our minds and again and again and again, it is the very fact that we are saved by the grace of God. Grace is, and of itself, the great dividing line between the two major religions of the world, biblical Christianity and everything else. It's the difference between the religion of human achievement and the religion of divine accomplishment. It's the difference between salvation by human effort and salvation by divine grace. And most of the world is living their lives today and betting their lives and their time in eternity on a religion of good works and human achievement apart from the grace of God. None of the other religious systems in the world know anything of this grace. And in fact, one of the most difficult words and the difficult concepts for in the Bible to translate into another language is this very word, grace. And yet, it is the very heartbeat of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the lifeblood of Christianity. It was J.I. Packer who rightly said that this one word, grace, contains within itself the whole of New Testament theology. Now, there are two things that we need to understand to be able to view the grace of God rightly. The first thing that we need to understand is God. That God is infinite. That God is transcendent. He is majestic in holiness. He is perfect and sinless and he is blameless in all of his ways. Isaiah 6 says that he is holy, holy, holy and that the whole earth is full of his glory. He has established his thrones in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. To whom will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. His judgments are unsearchable. And his ways are unfathomable. He is infinitely glorious. He is righteous in all of his ways. He is kind in all of his deeds. He is just in all of his ways. He is matchless in his wisdom. And he is supreme in all of his infinite, glorious, holy perfections. And Then we need to know about man. That man is utterly sinful through and through. Man's thinking, his desires, his affections, and his will are corrupted completely. We are defiled and deceived and enslaved to various lusts. We are futile in our minds. We are darkened in our understanding and alienated from the life of God. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because he are, they are spiritually appraised. The mind of man is set on the flesh and is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Man is not in a state of neutrality. But man is an active hater of God, and he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And so as we gaze upon the infinite holiness of God, and we place man down in his rightful place, we start to see this great chasm form between the two the higher we get into view the holiness of God and the higher we see God and all of his infinitely glorious, supreme perfections, we start to get a better view of the grace of God when we see man when he is low for what he is, truly is and all of his corruptions and his sinfulness. In other words, when we do that, we magnify the grace of God. But when we bring God down, and we liken him to our own image, and like the psalm says in Psalm 50, you thought I was just like you. And we start to compromise his perfections and his attributes. And then we try to take and elevate man to make him not so corrupted by sin, that he's just merely polluted, and that he can pull himself up by his own spiritual bootstraps. And we start to make that gap smaller and smaller and smaller. We start to have a small and a puny grace. And so the gospel of grace is that God who is infinitely holy and who sits upon his throne doing all that he pleases, who will not barter nor negotiate his righteous standards one bit. He will not lower down his bar of holiness and when we do that, and he is, because he is exalted in the heavens, he is glorious in strength and he's glorious in power. And then we who are sinful and corrupt, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. The only way that we are going to be able to find acceptance with this holy and righteous God has been exclusively manifested to us in the gospel of grace. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14:6, "I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me." Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter two verse five, "For there is one God and one meteor also between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ." Peter said in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is only by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, that we as guilty sinners will ever have any hope of heaven. And so the entirety of chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke is a defense, it's an answer, it's a response to the charge and the accusation from the scribes and Pharisees that this Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them. That Jesus is bridging that gap of God's holiness and men's sinfulness. And we saw that in verse 2 of this chapter, that this was their complaint against the Lord Jesus Christ. This man receives sinners and eats with them. The word receives was not necessarily a passive term like it sounds, but it it meant to be actively looking, eagerly awaiting or to look for. And then to eat with someone was to show someone that you, you accepted them. You regarded them favorably. And so from that point on in verses 3 through 32 of this chapter is Jesus's response to that accusation. And a demonstration through parables of the grace of God. So look at verse 8 with me as we begin to dig into our text a little bit. Verse 8 says, or what woman? Now stop right there. The first thing that I want you to see is the very fact that Jesus begins his parable here in Luke 15 by utilizing a woman in the story, he didn't utilize a man. But he chose a woman. Because the same point of this parable, it could have been made with a man. Had this been a man searching for this coin, it wouldn't have mattered. But Jesus intentionally utilized a woman for this parable. Now you might say to yourself, so what? Why in the world is that important? What does it matter if Jesus had told this story utilizing a man versus utilizing a woman? The point would have been the same. Well, the fact of the matter is that a similar story had actually been told by a Jewish rabbi. And in that story, a Jewish man had lost a little coin. And then he looked and looked for it until he found it. And then the rabbi compared that man's careful search... To the way a faithful Jew should look and look into the Torah for hidden treasures. And so as far as we know in the Jewish writings, this is something that a rabbi never did. They never placed a woman side by side with the story of a man. This was a male-dominated culture. And women were actually deemed of a lesser class and not worthy of much respect. But here is Jesus utilizing a woman in this parable, despite the fact that there were probably a majority of men there listening to his teaching. There were probably maybe some women in a, interspersed in the crowd, but the overwhelming majority would have been men. But what we begin to see as we, as we look at the gospel record is that this is not the first time that Jesus has used a woman in his teaching in Luke's gospel. There's numerous times that there have been two stories told, two healings that have taken place, two examples given where one of those two has been a woman as its subject. In Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, Jesus healed a centurion's servant, but then, right afterwards, he raised a widow's son, in verses 11 through 17. He told two parables about how God answers prayer. Utilizing a man in Luke eleven five 5 through 13. And then he teaches another one about a persistent widow. In Luke chapter 18, in verses 1 through 8. When he taught about the, the sign of Jonah. In Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 32. He used two examples from the Old Testament. The men of Nineveh and then the queen of the south he performed two miracles on the sabbath he healed a woman who was bent over and crippled in two and not able to straighten up in luke chapter 11 and then he healed a man with dropsy in luke chapter 14 in luke 13:16 he described the ones that he has saved as a daughter of abraham and in luke 19:9 9, he describes them as sons of abraham When Jesus told two parables about the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 13, the first parable was about a man who who threw a mustard seed into his own garden, and it grew, and it became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches in verses 18 through 19. And then in verses 20, 20 and 21, he told the parable of the woman who hid leaven in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. When Jesus begins to teach about the coming of the Son of Man in Luke 17 and verses 34 through 36, men will be working in the field, women will be grinding out their grains. And so what we see here is that contrary to the false accusations of modern day people today, like the atheist Richard Dawkins who calls God misog- uh, misogynists, right or that god's a male chauvinist or that the bible demeans women that the reality is this that over and over and over again the bible elevates the dignity and the status of women his gospel his teaching his salvation in himself is just as much for a man as it is a woman Galatians 3.28 says as much when it says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this isn't talking about the Bible's clearly defined roles uh, of gender roles in the church, and the home, like some groups have tried to claim by abusing this verse. But it's talking about salvation through faith. In Jesus Christ, that we are all spiritually on the same playing field before God. But I want you to consider something even further. That if we can obviously see in the first parable that Jesus is the good shepherd. And then the father who finds his lost son that we're going to start to look at in the next parable must be God the father then in some way, in this parable, the woman who finds her lost coin must also represent God. Now, there are a few Bible commentators and, and the early church fathers, they're not real comfortable with this. And so they say that the first parable is obviously the son, and the third parable in this chapter is obviously the father. And so this woman must represent the Holy Spirit lighting our way to God. As if somehow, some way, uh, they're not accusing God of being a woman or even comparing her to being a woman. Even my beloved Charles Spurgeon says that this woman represents the church. Some people try to come up with this Trinitarian interpretation in order to not accuse or compare God to being a woman. But I believe that that is forcing an interpretation into this text that is not there. But let's be clear. Hear me in this. This is not to say that God is a woman. I'm not saying that God does not have a gender because John 4.24 tells us that God is what? Spirit. But by and large... God reveals himself to us in his word in masculine terms in the Father and the Son. But on occasion, God is not embarrassed to, or he is not demeaned in any way whatsoever to compare himself or to compare his character to that of a woman. Psalm 23. Many of you know, God not only represents himself as a shepherd in verse 1, but then in verse 5, as a woman who prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And that's significant because men didn't set tables in those days. That was the job of women, and yet God says that he will prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. Consider in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 13. It is God who is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, comparing his tender mercy and his compassion to that of a woman by saying of himself, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And in Matthew twenty three thirty seven, it's Jesus who laments over his wayward people when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under his wings, and you were unwilling. And so God never demeaned, never diminished, never was even embarrassed to compare himself to that of a woman like we have here in this parable. And that's because women, contrary to these Pharisees and these scribes, what they believed about women, they are more than able to reflect the grace and the compassion of God in Christ Jesus. And so as any man today that does not value the gifts of women, that treats them with less respect, who thinks that they have a lesser intelligent, who think that they have a lesser dignity or a lesser worth, is not reflecting the love of God who values and treasures their souls just as he, much as he does a man. That's the point. That Jesus is making to these Pharisees. And choosing these characters in these parables. Shepherds in the first one they were unclean. They were deemed and women were deemed insignificant. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ says to them and says to us today. That both are redeemable. And they are beloved by God in the face of Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he continues in verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Again, this is one of those common sense questions because this coin that this woman would have lost, uh, it would have been a drachma, and it represents a single day's wage for the time. Imagine if you went to work for ten days straight somewhere, and you get your pay stubbed. And you take a look at it and your boss only pays you for nine of those ten days. He'd be upset, wouldn't you? You'd go right into that boss's office and you'd say, Hey, I want paid for my tenth day that you work. You would go and get your wages. That's the same concept for this woman. This is an entire day's wage that is missing. And it represented a huge loss to her. Like the loss of a daily wage would be to us. But more than that, This was probably her entire life's savings. Because they didn't have banks. They didn't have safe deposit boxes. They didn't treat money like the way we treat money today. It was a bartered society. And so money was a a valuable commodity. And she probably kept all of it tied up in a rag or or maybe strung through on a necklace and kept close to her. And so when she goes to count her coins, her ten silver coins she finds that one of them is missing. It might have slipped through her fingers one day or fell through a hole in the purse or the the rag there or, or even got knocked off the table. But it's a small item. It's a whole lot easier to lose your keys and your cell phone today. But it is a very significant item. It's a big deal. And that's part of the problem, or that's part of the pattern, rather, that we see developing in these parables, that the lost item is important. It's a big deal. It was 1 out of a 100. Now it's 1 out of 10. And the next one will be 1 son out of 2. It's an escalation of value, an increasing importance to find that which was lost. And so she begins her diligent search of this lost coin. It says... She do, what woman does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Now, most houses in that time, they didn't have uh, windows. And if they did, they were very small ones that didn't let very much light into the room. They would have been made out of these houses out of bricks and straw. And the floor would have been this hard packed dirt. It would have been dusty and dirty. Maybe there were even cracks that went through it from the dryness in which the coin could have fallen into. And so she carefully takes her light down to the floor. She scours it with a broom, moving that dirt aside, hoping to see this little shape pop up from among the dust and the dirt, hoping she can see a glimmer of it as she diligently searches for it. What a picture of our life before Christ. We're like this silver coin. We're this precious commodity. We're something of great value in the sight of God. And yet when we are apart from Christ, when we are in our depravity and our sin, we're like that coin that's buried beneath the dust and the dirt. We are defiled. We're helpless. We're unable to radiate the glory of Christ as we are hidden in the cracks of our sin-sick world. Richard Phillips writes, like a lost coin that was lost, sinners lie unused, no longer contributing to the value for which they were fashioned, while God's image with which they were stamped is increasingly tarnished and covered with the dust of sinful living. Do you remember your life before coming to Christ? Are you able to identify with this coin? Do you remember all of the things which you aimlessly chased in this world? All the things that you valued in this world? All those things that you esteemed in this world before coming to Christ? And then God swept through your life. And he sought you out. And he changed your heart's affections. And he began to polish your tarnished life so that you would then in turn reflect the infinite glory of God in Christ. That's why he made us and he saved us so that we might behold his glory and reflect his glory. And so that when we sparkle again and we shine, that we might see his greatness of his being and the supremacy of his majesty. That is the purpose for which you were made. And God did all that by his wonderful, matchless grace. And grace is only grace if it is God as the initiator of our salvation. Otherwise, grace is something that is owed to us and God becomes our in debt to us. But it's the Lord that has to do the finding. It's God that has to do the restoring. We don't clean our own dust off. You don't get yourself better and your life better before coming to Christ. You fly to Christ and let him sanctify you and justify you. We don't pull ourselves up out of the cracks. Ephesians 2:4 But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions. You were in that crack. You were filthy, you were dirty. He made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised you up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are secure in Christ. In the same way that this lost sheep that was found. This woman, she is just overjoyed at this lost coin that she has found. Verse 9 and 10. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Everyone in heaven is celebrating. Everyone is rejoicing in heaven at the redemption of God's precious treasure being found. Why does God rejoice? I thought about it. and To me, this imagery just is so perfect for our church right now. But it's like a baby being born. And at first, that baby, it cries. And it eats. And it it fusses. And it goes through a lot of messy diapers. But at some point, at some day... You'll pick that baby up and it will hear the sound of your voice and it will see the sight of your face and that child will look up to you and it will smile at you for the very first time. You can't help but beam and glow and smile back at you. You can't help but feel this sense of wonder and awe that this child hears your voice and it recognizes your face and it just makes you joyful. Just makes you so happy that this child sees you. It knows you. It has recognized you. This is what God does with us. When we hear his voice, and we see his infinite beauty and his holiness and we look up at him at the very first time when we he calls our voice and we see him and we smile at the face of god because we know he has called us and we see him and we smile he smiles back at us. God rejoices when you see him for all of his infinite glory. When you see him as infinitely supreme over everything in this world. When you see him in his splendor. When you see him high and lifted up, majestic in all of his ways, perfect in his holiness. This makes God rejoice. You recognize him and you see him for who he is. Is. This is what makes God happy. This is why heaven rejoices. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at your word. We stand in awe of the divine grace which you have bestowed to us, Lord. Let us never neglect a day of thankfulness for it. Help us just to be in wonder and awe and worship of what you've done for us. You found us. You diligently sought us. And you did so at the great cost of the blood of your own precious son. Father, let us be thankful for that this very day. We pray all these things in the precious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Matt. Invited for the uh, fellowship time at the fries, and which was mentioned earlier this morning. So, uh, let's pray. that and we'll be on our way gracious God we do thank you just uh, so much for pulling us out of the cracks may we rejoice in that we thank you that you rejoice in that Father uh, just ask that our time uh, together uh, will be a rejoicing time as we come together and eat and discuss things and uh, our conversations just be sweet, Lord. I'll bless our food in Christ's name. Amen. Dismuth.